Tonight we're going to look at three amigos that we would find in that series. Um, and one of them is Thomas, but we're looking at chapter 14 of John. Chapter 14 of John, Jesus' last night on earth. Now, Scripture teaches us the importance of three homes, a family, a fellowship, and a future. And boy, you could preach a sermon on all those, couldn't you? We all need three homes. We need a family, we need a fellowship, a church, and we need a future. And we know that Peter, Paul, and John spoke on three different themes. We know Paul spoke about faith more than anyone else. Peter talked about hope more than anyone else. And John talked about love more than anyone else. And the first 12 chapters of John covered three years. But John chapter 13 through 17 take place in one night. In one night. The foot washing, this great lesson here on trusting in the Lord because He's going to go away. And then, I mean chapter 15 and 16 and 17, the exalted high priest, that prayer of the Lord Jesus. I mean, that's it's... That last night, so many great things happened. You know, John 15, I am the vine, you're the branches. And he's walking and he's walking by a vineyard and he says those things. He's always using object lessons. When Jesus said, I'm the water of life, it's when they were carrying water down for a ceremony. When he said, I am the light of the world, it was around the time of Hanukkah, which is the time of lighting ceremony. When he walked by the temple, what did he say? Tear this temple down, and in three days I'll raise it up. He wasn't talking about that building, but he used that opportunity to get them to think about uh, the destruction of his body, and we know what that meant. We, of course, knew the rest of the story. But we know the Gospels, the Holy Spirit brings things to remembrance that happened, and then in the Epistles, he, the Holy Spirit leads us in truth, and then in Revelation, the Holy Spirit teaches us things to come. And John writes, of course, Revelation as well as the epistles and here, this great gospel. But we want to set the context because Jesus is speaking in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. And the way he said it, it had to be, let not your heart be troubled. Because he knew they were troubled. I mean, he had said he's going away. And all of a sudden, he's got to explain that they don't need to worry about anything. So stand with me and let's read. And um, we're going to actually read the last few verses of chapter 13, verse 36, to set the context. Remember, there are not chapter divisions in your Bible. They were added by translators. They weren't in the original scroll. So we... Uh, Pick up in chapter 13 in the context. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither thou goest? Or where are you going? Whither thou go, whither goest thou? And Jesus answered, Whither I go, you cannot follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. And Peter said unto him, Lord, which is the word master, you know, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thee. And oh boy, this has to be a moment of humility. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? And it's a rhetorical question. Verily, verily, or truly, truly is what that means. I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. You're going to deny me three times. And immediately he goes in and says, Let not your heart be troubled. 
And he begins to tell this story about going away and the fact that they can trust in him. God bless us. Thank you for your word. Speak to hearts, Lord. I don't know what you have for folks tonight, but I just pray you speak to each heart. Bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in the first verse, we have relief from anxiety. Let not your heart be troubled. I've heard some expressions over the years. Recently, I heard someone say, chill out. I guess that's a phrase we could use today. I've heard different expressions. Quit worrying about it. A friend of mine used to say, it's just a thing. It's just a thing. You know, you lose a thousand dollars. It's just a thing. My dad used to say, son, quit worrying about it. A hundred years from now, you'll never know the difference. And he was right. <laughs> you know, I remember I was 16. I was at basketball practice and I left my wallet on the bench. I never saw anyone in the gym during practice. Actually, it was just a practice with the coach and me in a big center that had gone to play college coming back and they wanted him to work with me in the gym one-on-one -on -one. and uh, on the inside moves he was a bigger guy and I had to learn to get the shout off with a giant on me you know and and afterwards I went over and my wallet was gone and when you're 16 15 dollars in that day was a lot of money and my wallet and my license were gone and I was distraught and I went home upset and my dad said and it made me mad a hundred years from now, you'll never know the difference. I know I won't know the difference a hundred years from now, but that's three tanks of gas. Because back then, we filled up the car with five bucks, you know? And I was riled up, frustrated. I didn't sass my dad too much because he was a big guy, and uh, he laid the law down, and, and uh, you know, he would quite often give me an education, the Board of Education, uh, and uh, I didn't want that. So I just was frustrated, and, and I remember I was upset. And if Jesus had said to me at that time, let not your heart be troubled, I might have been disrespectful to my Lord. And sometimes when we preach, the message has to be timely. In other words, the Holy Spirit has to speak to your heart about what's going on in your life. And sometimes it's frustrating. You're like, did the preacher have a camera in our house this week? What's going on? You took... Husbands and wives, you told him something. What, you, what, what did you tell him? You know, and that's happened over the years, and you know that. But the Holy Spirit does speak to us, and, and sometimes it agitates us. Sometimes it comforts us. Sometimes it convicts us. So I don't know what God has, but I know that we're not to let our heart be troubled about what's going on in our world today. So whatever's bothering you when you're frustrated, let not your heart be troubled. Do you really believe God is God? Do you really believe God's in control? Uh, you know, Brother Steve, like me, loves Israel. I know that. I mean, Israel, I mean, I, I, I just, I hate to see anyone treat the Jewish state that way. And so I'm always upset at Iran. I mean, it, it, it's good I'm not the president for a day because we'd be testing a whole lot of nuclear weapons on Iran. So I'd be a barbarian. So let's, let's not think about that. But I, I get upset, and then I have to step back and say, when Jesus comes, there'll be peace in the Middle East, so just come, Jesus, because I want peace. And when Jesus comes, there'll be peace in our lives. Because Jesus coming to the earth means the rapture's taken place, tribulation's done, He's coming back down to set up 
a kingdom of peace for a thousand years. So come, Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, let not your heart be troubled. Quit getting all worked up. What's the sense in acting like that? And I, I'm preaching to the choir, but, you know, I have to look in the mirror when I look in the Word of God and ask myself, what am I worked up about? Why am I letting things bother me? This is God's church. My mission's God's. You know, my life is God's. My health is God's. It's all God's. So I can chill. <laughs> I can relax. It's all okay. And you can relax. And you can trust God in the problems of your life. In this case, Jesus had said, I'm going away. Peter said, I want to go with you. And he said, you, you can't go with me. Oh, I'll die for you, Peter. The rooster's going to crow, and you'll already have denied me three times. And then you look further in the text. First of all, he talks about th this matter of relief from anxiety. He said, let your not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. The word believe. The word faith is used 98 times in John's Gospel. Faith and believe are the same thing, by the way. 98 times John believed. And he, he says, Peter, if you believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says, here's the reward for salvation. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. Now look over verse 23 and mark this word. Jesus answered and said unto him, if any man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Mark the word abode. Bible. That is the same Greek word as the word mansion. Did you know that same word? Mansion and abode. You know what's great, going to be great about heaven? Not the streets of pure gold. Oh, that's going to be beautiful. Not the pearly gates. Not the 12 fruit trees. Not the, the fact that the New Jerusalem will be 12 stories high, a cube. Each level will be the size of two-thirds of America. It's estimated all the Christians of all time and all future Christians have had mass evangelistic crusades and people saved. We'd all have an acre in that city. <laughs> an acre in a city like that. That's a lot of space. But you think about it. It's not all that. It's our being with Him. That's the, the abode. Same word as mansion. Now, why would they translate that to abode? Because it's all about being with Jesus. Our abode with Him. That's, that's what it's all about. When we think about heaven, we want to think about what it looks like. But I think we ought to think more about our relationship with Jesus and what it's going to be like to be married to a perfect groom, a person who loves us every day unconditionally forever, and to know that we will no longer disappoint Him because we won't be able to sin. We'll have new what? Bodies. We'll have new minds. We'll have the mind of Christ. Did you know that you will know everything? This is funny. As on the plane flying to Rapid City, and the pilot said, that's all I know. If you want to know more than that, ask a teenager because they know everything. Everybody laughed in the plane. I thought, that's a good line. But we actually will know everything. The mind of Christ. And just to see Him. 
And the, the, the way we're going to feel when we see him, this morning I was crying. I, I'm a crybaby sometimes when I'm alone with God, and I was crying, and I was preparing my heart and stuff for this message. And I thought, oh, Lord, couldn't you just come today? Couldn't you just come? He is so wonderful to see him. One look, one glimpse of him will be worth it all. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. I mean, that's going to be something, isn't it? You know how exciting you're going to be? The hair standing up on your arms, the, the thrill. Uh, I remember some of the greatest church services in my life, how a preacher would preach, and I would just, oh, it was so thrilling. And a great choir and a great solo, and you just praise God, and you just say, oh, man, that's going to be what it's, it's going to be like that with Jesus, but way better. And you're not going to care much about the streets of gold. You're going to be thinking about him every day. My son came to my house today. They're done with honeymoon, you know? And they're just so cute together. And I thought, you know, that when you first meet your sweetheart and that feeling you get, now after she washes a few loads of your clothes, the feeling goes away, and love is more of a commitment than a feeling. You know how that goes. And But that feeling and that excitement, you're going to run down and see her, you know, and you can't wait for the next date. With Jesus, it's always going to be that way. Multiplied thousands of times. And so our abode with Him is the greatness of heaven. Not even the beautiful place. I mean, I I like this church, but after you come here a while, you don't get up in the morning and say, I can't wait to see that auditorium. First time you come in is pretty, isn't it? But you don't wake up there, oh, I can't wait Sunday to go to church and see those pews. Oh, pew, you don't think that at all. You, you think, I, I can't wait to worship the Lord. And of course, all of us want to see some choir and see some music. We want our music program to be a little longer than five minutes. I mean, I'm getting up this morning. I got up and I thought, it's 10 to 11. I can get in the pulpit. We're going to be out here at 1130. <laughs> But when we have music, it won't be that way. We'll have some more music and some choir numbers, and, and it'll, it'll be good for our soul. We need some music. But my point is, you don't look forward to the pews. You look forward to worshiping God. We want to make that worship experience as good as possible. And, and, and that, that may include more music. It may include more prayer for our service, more involvement by you, by saying praise the Lord, not now, but when the Lord lays that on your heart, or encouraging someone by a good word after church. We need to make this place all about, let's go and spend our abode with Jesus at anchor today. You know, because that's what it's about. It's about being with Him. He's here right now. I can tell He's here. And I know He's in your heart as well. And that abode with him is what it's all about. And I've gotten way off the subject, but we find here the carpenter has gone to prepare a place. My Uncle Bill is a great carpenter. Just before dying of cancer at 62, he said to one of his nieces, do you think God has a place up there I can work on? I love working on stuff. And she said, Uncle Bill, I'm sure he will. And I don't know that, but I just thought it was cute how he wanted to continue to be used of God. But so we have here, we have here Peter. Peter's involved here. And then, then we have Thomas, verse 5. Now some people, let me just say this, 
Do you know that some people do not believe Thomas was saved here yet? We don't know. I believe he was. Let me tell you why I believe he was. Because when Jesus was spending those few moments with them, he said, one of you is not a follower, and we know that to be Judas. And it seems like he would have said more about that than indicating that just one of them wasn't a follower. But Thomas here, we call him Doubting Thomas, he, he said unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? He's missing the whole point. And Jesus clarifies it quickly. It's not about, you know, a map. Did he expect Jesus to say, well, roll out this piece of sheepskin and I'll show you how to get there. Billy Graham, funny story, he went to a town and said to a little boy, could you tell me how to get to the post office? And the boy said, sure, and he told him how to get there. I think you've heard this story already. And, and Billy Graham said, thank you. And he said, I'd like to t tell you, we're having a crusade tonight. If you come to church, we'll tell you how to get to heaven. He said, how are you going to tell me how to get to heaven when you don't know how to get to the post office? <laughs> yeah. This wasn't about, you know, directions on sheepskin to get to heaven. Jesus quickly turns the conversation into spiritual matters when he says, I am the way. It's not about, you know, a map. It's not about Google Maps. It's about Jesus. Can't get to heaven without Jesus. And, and so he says, I am the way. I am the way. And, of course, we know he's the road to the Father. Lost men don't know the way. We have to show them. Blind men can't see the way. We have to lead them. And here are three of the great I am's of John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's our word, uh, uh, bios, our word biology comes from that. I am the life. In other words, you're dead without me. In other words, you're lost without me. In other words, you're deceived without me. The way, you're lost. The truth, you're deceived. The life, you're dead. Remember, so many scriptures that come to our mind in Matthew 18, 11, we quoted Luke's version, but Matthew said Jesus came to save. He came to save. And we know that, that uh, the truth, we know 2 Corinthians 4, 4, says the devil has blinded the eyes of people so they don't believe. Blinded the minds. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. 4. You've got to mark this. I know you know the verse. But what does Satan do? I'll tell you, I've witnessed to people. This guy named Rick, who was a friend of mine in high school, when I got right with the Lord in junior college, I witnessed to him. Every week he came to our Bible study. Every week I'd say, would you like to be saved? Every week he'd say no. The next week he'd come back with more questions. He had forgotten how to be saved again. I'd go over it again, go over it again. And this went on for two years, and I went off to college. He moved to California. I didn't hear from him for 30 years. About 10 years ago, I get a phone call. Dan, Rick Wall. Well, I got out of prison. <laughs> I met a young girl, a girl, and he didn't say young, but he said, I met a nice lady, and she's a Christian. She led me to the Lord. I want you to know I'm a Christian now. I'm like, he finally understands. What was hindering him? Look at 4.4. In whom the God of this world. Who's the God of this world? This is the devil's world. God's sovereign, but he lets, lets him run to and fro and do his mess. But he doesn't let him touch you. 
Did you know he has to get permission to bother you? Job tells us that. He can't mess with you. But boy, he's got the world in a mess. Because he messes with all our world's leaders. He messes with our congressmen and our senators. I can't believe some of the stuff I hear from some of our leaders. I think, what in the world's happened to our country? It's a good thing I don't have a rifle and a scope and that I'm not close by. Because, I mean, I'm, I sometimes think, those people, God, why don't you just take them out? Well, this is the devil's world. When he comes, he's going to take us all out. And we won't miss this place for one second. You know, the last funeral I preached, I said, this person, I don't remember which funeral it was, I've done so many, but I said, this person wouldn't want to come back. No one that's got a glimpse of Jesus in that abode wants to come back to this place. You think that the people in heaven give one hoot about this auditorium? You think they care about their old house? Oh, nobody's cut the yard. Are you kidding me? They're with Jesus. Nothing matters. Nothing matters here. And so here, we, the truth, because people were deceived, and life, because people are dead. We covered that this morning. You know that we're dead dogs, right? We're dead. So he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Early Christians viewed life as a journey. That's what they thought about life. You know that because of all the passages that talk about running the race. Timothy, you know, striving for the crown, all these things. Hebrews says, let's run the race that's set before us. They always viewed it as a journey. And that's how we should view it. We're just one step closer each day. You know, I'm one step closer to heaven than I was yesterday. And I may be one step away. Let me tell you something. If I die tonight, don't worry, I wouldn't want to be back here. I love you. I love preaching. But I'll be in that abode. I'll be with Jesus. I'll look back and say, ooh, that body, I'm glad it's not coming with me. And the suit will be laying on the floor with the body. And you, you may come up and look at me and say, ooh, Dan's full of formaldehyde. But he looks good, doesn't he? <laughs> Isn't that something we always say and we always really think, well, for formaldehyde being pumped in us, we look good. But I always look and think, boy, that poor person looks dead, and they are. <laughs> and then we eulogize them. My, my Aunt Carolyn used to say, oh, isn't it funny at funerals? Everybody becomes a saint. People get up and talk about that person. Oh, that person was so wonderful. And she says, I've been to funerals. I thought, well, that person was really a bum. But at funerals, we eulogize, which means just speak blessed of them. Listen, I'm not going to care about that. If my worst enemy showed up and spit on my, I wouldn't care. I'll be with Jesus. You know, I had that mind of Christ, and I think, oh, man, this is awesome. And I look forward to seeing my family. But without Christ, you're headed down a dead-end street. Someone once said this, he's the way because he's the life and the truth. He's the only way because he's life and truth. 
who did I hear the other day say, no other religion has a Savior that's alive. They all have someone who's dead and has never claimed a resurrection. Buddha's just massively overweight. (laughs) That guy, if he were alive, he wouldn't have much time left. His stomach is way out there. And I mean, Muhammad's long gone. In all the gods of the past, do you remember Baal and all them? Whoever worships them anymore? Why? If they really were real, wouldn't there be some group still worshiping Baal? Jesus is the way because he's the truth. And because he conquered death, he's the life. He's the living way. And back to our text and here, he says to Thomas, and this is why people question him, uh, whether he's saved, he said, if you had known me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. So he says to Peter, if you had known me, you'd have known my father. But But from now on, you know me and you know him. And some people believe that might be his conversion. But look over at 20, 28, because this is really where... This is a big moment in Thomas's life. Was he saved prior when Jesus called him? Was he saved in 14? Was he saved in 2028? 20, Look at 2028. 20, Thomas says, I'm not going to believe he's alive. I mean, people have seen him. People he spent three and a half years with are saying, Thomas, he's alive. Mary Magdalene, the most trustworthy person of all, the most faithful Christian of all, the first to the tomb, you know, the first to the burial, she said he's alive. And all of them said, he's alive. Tom said, I'm not going to believe it. Unless I touch him and feel those. And Jesus walks in and said, Thomas. He knew what Thomas had said. That had to be alarming for Thomas. Oh, wow, he knew I said that? Put your hand in my side side, and, and touch me and know it's me. And look what Thomas says in verse 20 after touching him. The Bible says, Jesus said in the last, verse 27, the last line, and be not faithless. That's why some believe, this is his moment of salvation, but believing. And folks, we don't argue that because we don't know. And I can read a lot of good commentators and get different opinions. And it doesn't matter to me. But what matters to me is this verse 20 is huge because Thomas says, the two greatest things you could say, my Lord, my Master, and my God. What do you call Jesus? The two greatest things you can call Jesus. You're my Master and you're God. You're my God. In other words, Jesus was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He was everything He said He was. And, and then, then we go back to our text and we conclude with this. Because we have to mention verse 8. The three amigos here. Peter and Thomas and Philip. We don't know a lot about Philip, but Philip says here, Lord, show us the Father and it suffices. All we want to see is the Father. Well, God's a spirit. No man's seen God at any time, God the Father. So what does Jesus say to Philip? Philip, Philip, how long? You know, have, I've been with you a long time. Haven't I been with you a long time, Philip? How do you not know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Don't you get that yet? I and my Father are one. That's a paraphrase. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been with you so, so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? 
He that has seen me has seen the what? Father. And how sayest thou? Why are you asking that? Why are you asking to show the Father? That's an amazing miracle of the Trinity. I can't explain the Trinity to you. I take it by faith. Who can explain? Three people? But they're all one. How can you explain to someone that Jesus has always existed? We say it, we teach it, we believe it. But all we know from our minds is that everyone and everything has a beginning and an end. Not Jesus. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. But what that really means is He's always existed. He's timeless. He's always been there. The crowd said, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus said, come and see. And he says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know about God, get to know Jesus. If you want to get to know Jesus, get to know this book. If you want to get to know this book, you better get on your knees in prayer. You know, I sit in my office, and I have a good library. If you've been to my office, you say, wow, he's got a lot of books. But you know, the greatest teaching I've ever had in my office is the Holy Spirit. You know that? That's the Holy Spirit. He's, he's better than all my, my scholars on my shelves. He's better than my education. He's better than the people who taught me so much in seminary. The Holy Spirit is the teacher of today, and you have him living in you. And he wants to teach you all things. So you can get on your knees and pray, and you can open up this book and say, Wow, the Lord just gave me this thing. And you can come to church and say, Look what the Lord showed me. And someone will say, Wow, that's good. Or they may say, I knew that already. They're a little proud. But those are the greatest experiences I've ever had. And let me tell you something else. When I open and share a chapter like this that I began to look at at 545 in my office, I know I need to be totally dependent on the Lord to share what I just shared with you. You understand? Because everything you've experienced tonight the Holy Spirit spoken to you about tonight was all from God. You understand that? He, he knew what I'd say. I didn't know what I was going to teach. At 3.30 today, I'm driving to church and saying, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do tonight. I didn't feel that what I prepared for this morning was good for tonight. And I said, Lord, I don't know what I want to do, but I sure need you. And that's him calling now. And he said, Dan, it's 6 o'clock, and it's time for you to quit preaching. God is so good, isn't he? Do you know laughter's good? Did you know emotion's good in church? I tell my preacher boys, intellect, emotions, and will, guys. Remember, intellect, emotions, and will. Your job as a preacher is to feed the sheep, feed that intellect. They need to learn Scripture. But you also need to challenge their will. Challenge them to change. And you need to try to stir emotions. And where you aren't that good at it, the music is vitally important to help stir emotions. We need music here. I can make you laugh sometimes. 
And hopefully you'll praise the Lord sometime and cry sometime, but music is big on stirring the emotions. So it's good to laugh in church. Good to laugh. Even if you laugh at me and my corniness or my stupidity, that's okay. Laugh at each other, but laughter's good. Psalm 2.2, God looks down from heaven and laughs at people, especially arrogant people. I'm sure he has a sense of humor when it comes to me. I'm always amazed. I say, God, why have you used me over the years a time or two? Because I know what I am. I don't deserve to preach. Do you know that? Did you know you don't deserve to be saved? But God is good all the time. Let's pray. God bless us. And Lord, if folks want to come to pray, our altar's always open. And we're always open to rejoicing or testifying. And so, Lord, we, when we, while we are closing, if you ever decide to touch someone's heart and they move during this time to be saved or to pray, we pray that we'll just be accommodating and uh, sing and praise the Lord with them. But, Lord, this, this hour is yours, this altar is yours, this church is yours. We ask you to lead us because you are the only leader worth following. Bless now in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. And if you need to come and pray, of course, you know you can.